Hey, I'm Polos, and today we sit down with Steve James, who's also known as Guru Viking. He teaches self-development through meditation, various workshops, also has vast experience in contemplative disciplines, extreme outdoor survivals, and somatic practices. We discuss his first encounter with meditation at a young age, also having childhood goals like becoming a priest. What's the difference between Christianity and a Celtic approach, what it's like living on the boat, and also his journey of how he became who he is today. Hey, and before we start, Steve actually took the host position of the Ampolos podcast and for the icebreaker, he started interviewing me and I spieled for about 30 minutes about my story and my background. So if you're not interested in that, you can skip to a 36 minute mark and start the podcast and the conversation between us. But if you're interested, go ahead and give it a try. But anytime you feel like it's not something that you've came to listen for, just skip to 36 minutes and we'll see you on the other side. Thanks. One two. Perfect. One two. Okay. One two. Okay. Wow. Well, thanks very much for inviting me on your podcast. It's no, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for um, accepting. You know, it's it's a it's difficult in the beginning when you start something, and uh, I do have a other podcast just for business more, since from cannabis and uh, hemp side, but. You know, in, in the beginning, I think everybody experienced that it's sort of hard getting guests on just because you're a beginner. So they're not really knowing what to expect. But uh, the last few guests that I had on, it was really interesting. And I feel like uh, I think you mentioned in one of the, your own podcasts as well that, uh, you know, you interview a lot of interesting people. And from a branding standpoint, it's not really, you know, when a marketer looks like, oh, you have to go with a certain specific audience. It's not really, I guess, um, not I wouldn't say legible, but it's not... Um, it's not cohesive when it comes to growth. And uh, I'm really glad that I actually came across your podcast uh, through Frank Yang, which I've been following for almost a decade now. So I've been seeing him. Really? Yeah, I've been seeing him uh, blossom and, you know, peel the layers away in the last 10 years. It's been an interesting journey to watch him. Yeah, what's your podcast's name? I found your cannabis podcast, Cannabetic. Yeah, yeah. So it's related to diabetes. I'm type 1 diabetic, so I just called it Cannabetic. Uh, so we basically talk about cannabis and hemp. I, I interview startups in more in like tech space right now and more textile and sustainability. And then mm. this one is just kind of plain old boring. I'm Polius, which is uh, my name, Paul. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that actually, it was kind of funny how it developed. It was uh, through after design school, they made us uh, make portfolios. And uh, the usual way is just putting your first and last name dot com. And I was like, ah, oh, that's kind of boring. And that doesn't really represent me because I was already going through like, different stages of like, I guess, awakenings and trying psychedelics. And I was like, that doesn't represent me. It doesn't feel good in my heart. And I was mm. like, how about instead of I am, I'm Polos because I am the processes of whatever this human flesh is doing. And that kind of started off and I just always clicked with it and uh, just kept it. So it kind of uh, originality started off with that. Nice. I like it. Should we be recording this yet, by the way? I'm recording, or, but I, I will uh, start in a few minutes, just, you know, break it out the ice. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And is it audio only or visual or what? Uh, video too, yeah. Okay. I feel like video uh, gets a little bit more attraction for some reason instead of audio. Oh, yeah, you can see more expressions and so on, isn't it? I, I prefer yeah. video too. Yeah, me too, because that just means a lot more. I tried uh, audios before, and I, I don't know why I'm, 
I didn't really feel the connection. Uh, the first few Canabetic podcasts were uh, audio recorded, and I didn't really feel the connection with the person versus seeing him or her uh, in front of me. It's a little bit different, obviously. Yeah. How did you? Uh, so how did you uh, came across uh, Frank Yang? I wanted to ask you before we start. Sure. Um, well. I'm, of course, interested in meditation, as you know. Yeah. And I've interviewed people who are, uh, who, who are kind of a, so, who Frank Yang admires or follows. He, he likes people like Daniel Ingram, uh, Chula Dasa, Shinzen Young, people like that. And I've interviewed those people. So, and I'm familiar with those scenes to a certain extent, some of them more than others. So there was a lot of, let's think, I don't know, maybe I ca- maybe he came up in an, algorithm thing but then there was a lot of people posting around when he uh announced that he'd achieved fourth path and became come an hat. yeah um of course a lot of people were saying you know look at this because even though daniel ingram did that uh i don't know 10 years ago maybe i don't actually know how long it was ago but it must have been a while ago that he declared he was fourth path and then created a total <laughs> upheaval although i was not aware of that at the time you know i was not really into the internet meditation scene in those days. So I don't, I didn't, I wasn't there, but from what I understand, it was quite a hoo-ha he created and he did that. Um, even though he's done that, not a lot of people have done it since, um, at least not as publicly as him. So yeah, and I, I really like Frank's editing and I think he's just a very creative and interesting person. Where, he, you know, we could lay all that out give him a give him a sort of uh, space to express his personality and tell his full story and report on all of his experiences and so on i think it was successful i think the episode we did achieved that it really um i think he came across very well and he came across very uh, had a lot of space and it was interesting and engaging so i was pretty happy with how that episode came out in terms of you know you're always trying to poc- at least i always trying to podcast to bring out the best yeah yeah in the person because then it makes it more interesting uh to watch and i think uh you know there's a different side of frank too the long more longer form you know no fast cuts no, no crazy editing all that stuff <laughs> yeah. yeah so i liked him I, I liked him a great deal actually you know as a per- to meet to meet him i find him very very warm and, and uh generous and engaging yeah it was uh yeah definitely one of the most interesting podcasts I've listened. To. I'm, I'm glad he posted online your channel too because I mean your channel was uh, small and I was I told my girlfriend too I'm like look at this gem that I found and she's like well channels don't need to have 100k I'm like well his probably doesn't need to have 100k he definitely deserves it and the people that you have obviously Daniel Ingram and everybody knows Shinzen Young I mean and you're almost in the community and then I go back through all the podcasts you just have so many resources and it kind of went down the spiral of a rabbit hole just listening through various podcasts i probably listened uh through like five already and it was like one of those uh one of those memes that uh posted online when you're at like 2 a.m in the morning and you come across something really good and then you don't go to sleep till you okay. finish up but um yeah i'm really glad uh, that it came across from you so and I, I, uh, I'm really thankful for you to accept in the podcast. Like I said, it's, it's, it's difficult in the beginning. Once you start rolling, it's easier to, I guess, grab guests on because they're like, eh, I don't want to be on the first few. And I, I totally understand that. You know, it was uh, hard in the beginning for me in um, hemp and cannabis space as well because you're sort of um, like a nobody, almost like a paradoxical view. Hmm. Oh, you're you're very welcome. I'm happy to be here, and thanks. I'm glad you like the podcast too. <laughs> cool. So, shall we start? Yeah, let me just let me just grab a thing of water because I already drank my coffee. 
Do not mind me if I pop a uh, apple juice in the middle of a podcast. I just no, check my I'm on the on the lower side, going lower. So I don't know if I'm gonna go completely low or not. Oh, how do you monitor it? Do you have one of those arm things, or do you have to? Do I did. Um, so it's it's actually a funny story. Before we start, um, I did have that, uh, and then uh, my in America, I had you have insurance usually under your parents to like 26, and my mom was looking at the hospital, so pretty had pretty good access to everything. I did have for a few years uh, continuous glucose monitor. And then mm -hmm. once that ended, um, it's really hard to afford it if you buy it out of your own pocket. It's usually like it's it lasts about two weeks, uh, not involving, you know, if you rip it off, there's always, you know, stuff like that catches on something in your shirt or something. Uh, and sometimes there's obviously false sensors. Uh, they're usually about like 50 to 100 bucks per uh, piece. So I imagine paying, you know, every 10 days to two weeks. It's a, it's a hefty sum. So I stopped uh, using that and I got this um, one drop. Uh, it's another diabetic that created the company. They're actually pretty big now. They're over a hundred million dollars uh, worth because they got a lot of investments. But um, the base it's and it's sexier too, because usually most of the continuous glucose monitors, the ones that you prick your finger with, they're just, you know, bulky and ugly. This one is very well designed. I'll show you. It's actually sitting on my table. It's chrome and has a nice leather pouch in it. And it looks it looks normal. And I think it makes you feel a little bit more. I guess less insecure uh, popping that mm. popping that out in the public. So I was using this now for a while, and I really like it just because of the software. Um, it has like this VR or um, artificial, not artificial, augmented reality that I could kind of put on the wall and see like my trends and stuff with a mountain oh, cool. going. Um, and also they have like coaches and everything integrated to the app. So I've been using the Pricker for now until. I get back on uh, normal health insurance here, which is if you heard about the United States, it's it's pretty difficult, especially if you're a small business owner, uh, to get it. Yeah, I heard that. What, when were you diagnosed? Uh, Ten years ago, so it was uh, uh, two. I was a senior, so I think 2010. Yeah, 2010, July 4th, and it was like um, that that itself was actually like an awakening moment because I was going through. We should record this. We should probably record. Oh, yeah, we're recording. This. We're recording. Yeah. Oh, we are. Oh, good. Yeah. 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 Even though I don't see it. Oh yeah, yeah. It says it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah sorry. Yeah. I, I hope I didn't screw up your editing. Sorry. No, no, no. It's all good. Yeah. Go ahead. Um. And uh, what happened was I was going through like this. So even track back a, a little bit uh, backwards. When I was living, I'm originally from Lithuania. Um. When I was growing up, I had these dreams where this woman used to come in with a dead face, and I used to call her a witch. And she looked like a witch, but she had a skull face, and she used to scare me all the time in my dreams. Um, until I reached this point where I think I got a little bit older and I came to the conclusion that I shouldn't be scared of her. And once that happened, she welcomed me for some reason. And I still remember these. Like going, it was like from um, two years old to about like six years old. Um, she welcomed me and almost disappeared out of my dreams. I saw her once. She tried to scare me and I was like, it's, it's not going to work anymore. And um, I was going, even when I was a little kid, I was going through these stages where um, my mind used to work at night. I used to wake up, I don't know if it was a nightmare or what, but I used to wake up from where I was halfway dreaming and seeing geometric patterns while I was awake and hearing the sounds from the dream. And they're like terrifying, you know, different frequency sounds. And I used to call her at night screaming. I'm like, what is going on with me? 
but leading up to diabetes, I was um, I had a girlfriend and everything was just falling apart around that. And um, I didn't I didn't get diagnosed. It was more self induced. I was taking so many supplements, and one of the supplements before they started putting these regulations and um, you know these athletic testings, uh, uh, you know the approved um, supplements on the market. I was taking a, I think it was a pre hormone called um, MDRAW, which is a methyl di trexamine, which goes through your liver and it's very actually toxic for your liver. Um, so I was taking that and, um, and other stuff from GNC, like just so many things stacking every, every, almost every teenager was because the whole, I guess, experience was just to, you know, you wanted to get big to show off to people. And when you're 16 years old, you're still growing. So I think I had affected my hormones at that. And it all came crashing down on uh, July 4th. If you're familiar, United States Independence Day. Uh, that's when I got um, admitted to the hospital and that's when I broke up with my girlfriend. So everything almost like fell apart in one day and it was like a pretty crazy experience. But um, after that, um, I felt like maybe because, you know, I was uh, I was really open and I had tremendous drive. And I think um, when you speak from uh, Carl Jung perspective, you know, I didn't know how to I was aware that my shadow was there, but I didn't know you know, at 16 years old, you kind of don't even know what ego is or the shadow or anything like that. But I knew that I was if maybe I didn't get diagnosed with diabetes, who knows what what would have happened, because I was really destructive in sense, you know, trying to fit in trying to be cool, uh, lying and you know, just what a teenager does is just trying to find himself. And I think the the whole getting diagnosed and the whole experience kind of grounded me to look at myself differently. And I guess follow a different path as from the norm of how you raised in school and kind of educated. Um, and then um, the second phase was uh, when I was 19 with, di- with diabetes, uh, I was, I got into the which we're going to talk about actually. Um, I got introduced into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu through Joe Rogan, of course. And I fell in love. And I mean, to a point where I was so addicted, I was training and I got this opportunity to train and help with the academy. Um, I got my blue belt within five months. It usually takes like a year to two years to get the first belt. Uh, And it was just an awe experience. But then after everything fell apart, the guy was a shaman actually too. That's where I kind of got introduced to Sanskrit. He was a crazy dude that went off into India for seven years, came back and went off to the jungle of Peru, uh, studied shamanism, ayahuasca and stuff like that. And um, I don't know if I, you know, he was doing a lot of... um, um the songs the shamanic songs and he was like blowing the smoke on my head a lot i don't know if he actually like cursed me or anything like that but he himself um didn't accept the experience of ayahuasca because he was still angry and he wanted you know revenge for other people versus usually you know the common experiences that we hear about when it comes to psychedelics or anything that you take that inhibits your mind is usually the when you come out you kind of see everything from a different lens and you know, it was kind of clear to me now seeing that he was developing a lot of um, medical problems too. his hormones were out of place, because I think he, he was holding it everything like uptight versus letting go. And I was like, well, if you were studying shamanism and taking ayahuasca all this years, like you should have learned something, because you know, it, it's sort of, um, it does, it does really transfer into physical illnesses, I believe in your body, and it kind of from the inside out, it starts showing. So that's uh, my whole spiel about uh, <laughs> diabetes. <laughs> How does the shaman relate to the diabetes? Um, he was uh, so he was uh, trying to cure it, and he's uh, he was doing a whole bunch of um, ikarus, 
Yeah, the songs. And uh, I did dip a little bit of ayahuasca. I didn't take it and it went through the whole uh, ceremony. I just uh, took like a little sip, which didn't really affect it. But he was under ayahuasca many times and he was trying to heal me. And um, I did uh, I did try like different diets, which was uh, which the first time I got introduced into fasting and almost replicated the uh, pre ayahuasca diet, which is in the jungle. They usually usually eat um, one fish and uh, one potato per day for seven days. Uh, restrain your, restrain yourself from, uh, pornography, you know, sex, anything that kind of gives you these negative stimulations, uh, or in, in the viewing them as, I guess, negative. So I had to restrain myself. And that was like the first time that he was trying to do something. But at the same time, um, I, I'm, I felt that it was, it wasn't really helping me because he himself needed to let go completely in order, I think, to teach. And then at one point too, he wanted me to, go to the jungle and teach jujitsu there and be there for a year and learn um shamanic rituals and you know be become a become a teacher what kind of cutting out hello yep yeah uh wow that's amazing when you were diagnosed i know that with uh diabetes type 1 diabetes um it's interesting people of course know about the effects of the, you know, what you got to do with the blood sugars and so on. But actually it can be interesting psychological effect um, because usually people are diagnosed with type one diabetes uh, as, as children or in their teenage years. It's not, you know, usually from what I understand, or at least there's a lot of people like that. So, uh, and sometimes it can be difficult to accept it and to kind of integrate and, uh, the entire thing it can be kind of destabilizing. What was it like for you psychologically when you um, were diagnosed. It's a lot to take on board, the constant monitoring of the blood sugars and so on, uh, sort of facing these limitations, etc. Yeah, it was, uh, I mean, the stabbing itself was super hard, pricking yourself. Uh, you know, I've never thought that I could put a needle in my body four to 10 times a day. Like when, when you tell that a regular person, it's like, holy shit, it's, it's completely different. But um, even to this day, actually, the it's it's a habit. I, I don't prick myself like fast. And I remember the first the first needle in the hospital that my nurse came and she's like, just uh, she's like, what's the technique? How do you do this? She's like, just pinch your skin because it uh, alleviates the pain a little bit and just stick it in. And I not not even to this day, I go really fast. I go really slow, find a tender spot where I don't feel it. And I just go in. But psychologically, um, you know, the beginning was hard. Obviously, it was difficult in a sense that it was the integration itself was was the most difficult part because it's it sort of restrains you from the general freedom when you're growing up as a kid of you know you don't have to eat for a whole day and you could just be out playing with your friends or you know doing whatever you're doing that was really hard because it was sort of like um hey before i leave i have to check my blood sugar making sure that if i'm going up okay should i bring a snack that was completely new to me having a bag with me you know full of snacks and juice and my monitor and my insulin that was completely different but after a year i think uh i think i i integrated it pretty well because you know like frank, we have a similar story with frank king i was I, I always wanted to be athletic and you know be i guess identified identified or accepted through the body i knew that if i was athletic and you know bigger and looked good then i'll be accepted which definitely happened because there was um it was almost a paradox because i established um confidence because i was bigger you know i was training jiu-jitsu and obviously the thing that before diabetes uh, i couldn't gain any muscle because i was in a ketoacidosis so i was constantly 
you know, I was going to the gym for 20 minutes and I was like, damn, I can't even have a pump or anything anymore. I'm like, what is happening to me? My eyes are yellow. I'm like, I'm peeing every five minutes. Uh, I get cramps constantly. And then a year in, once I gained 20, 30 pounds back on, I felt completely amazing. And then obviously there was more stages as you go through, you know, 18 years old to about 23. I went through um, being very insecure, uh, checking my blood sugar in public. You know, I've never actually went into a restaurant until about like 25, which was about four years, uh, three years ago, uh, where I could just sit at the table, order the food. And before I eat, I'm open, have my blood sugar and all my insulin out there checking before I eat. It was always in the car or before home, I was already prepared. And now I just, it's, it's sort of, I guess, part of me and you just, you know, you have to kind of roll with it. And, um, also, there was a point where um, I, I found a, a cool dude. His name was Rob Howell. He was a big influencer. And uh, at that point, I was really uh, experimenting with microdosing a lot. Uh, and it was uh, on a microdose of uh, LSD, which I was in this field of awareness where almost the curtain of your intentions didn't go through a filter when you're naturally like, I guess you assign yourself a task and you have this intent that it's going to do something good. I just saw clearly through it. And I just reached out to him on microdose of LSD. I'm like, Hey, I just want to go on your podcast. He had a podcast and a platform to speak about diabetes. And, uh, that was the first platform that kind of opened up. I was able to honestly share my whole experience going through drugs, alcohol, alcoholism, and, uh, LSD and, you know, how it helped me. And, uh, I gained a lot of, other diabetic followers. And then I saw, I was like, why was I hiding from all these diabetics? It's actually good because people message you and they want to relate to you. And it became sort of like this community that uh, started bringing me up and uh, the rest is sort of a history from there. <laughs> That's interesting. So you found featuring it or speaking about it openly yeah. was quite, quite a turning point. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when you suppress all these feelings and then when you notice I'm like, and I discovered the network too, diabetes, you know, through him because he's such a big influencer uh, in the community, um, that, you know, uh, I noticed that every, we have similarities with other diabetics, what we deal with every day, you know, when I see memes and it's sort of heartwarming to see that, you know, I'm like, Oh, he's going through the same or she, he or she is going through the same as we all do. But at the same time, uh, you notice the difference, how body reacts with, you know, various diabetics, whether if they're overweight, whether if they're skinny, if they're exercising or not, their diets. And you hear these stories that I'm like, damn, like this is, this is something new to me too, because I thought that, you know, we're kind of all on the same level in terms of everything works for the same way for everybody, but it's totally the opposite and kind of opened up the pathway to the whole spiritual healing. And I guess uh, reading a lot of books and going to meditation retreats uh, and through everything else in life. What kind of, uh, well, I have, I have <laughs> so many questions came. Um, so you mentioned you uh, had struggled with alcoholism for a period of time. Yeah. Uh, that was that was actually right after we had a fallout with uh, I actually recorded um, about drugs and alcoholism, the previous podcast, the solo one. Okay. That was uh, right after I fell out uh, from the jujitsu team. Uh, the guy I told you, the shaman had he already had a bad history of disappearing. He already did that with uh, one student. He disappeared into the jungle for five years and then he came back and the student established the gym pretty well and he wanted to take back ownership of it. But the guy didn't let him because he's like, you just disappeared and you let everything, all the burden on me to pay the lease, pay everything, you know? Um, and he kind of tried to do that with me. Uh, he wanted to open up another academy and he just wanted to put me in there to teach. 
And I, I kind of started feeling that energy that he was pushing me in not a really good way not to improve my jiu-jitsu. Um, and when the team fell out, my actually parents, you know, they decided me to that I needed to get a job finally. And I went into the regular foreigner European route of uh, working for a trucking company as a coordinator dispatcher. And I was around negative influences as well, where it started off as like, hey, do you want to grab beer? And I was like, Wednesday, you know, and or let's meet up during lunch break. Uh, let's go grab, let's go to a local bar really quick, grab a beer, eat something and come back to work. And it sort of kind of spiraled down until we got introduced to uh, cocaine. And cocaine was a very uh, popular substance, especially there with the, within the European community. And even my town, I discovered so many people that I would have never even thought that are doing it um i started uh doing it just on the weekends until we got a a friend that there was a constant supplier and he was picking up and it started just from doing it on the weekends to starting on friday saturday then maybe on sunday to almost seven days a week periodically for about two three years until i had uh, i was introduced that night uh, my friend out of nowhere gave me you're familiar with xanax um mm. opioids Mm-hmm. So he gave me a whole prescription pill bottle of Xanax. And if you're not familiar with cocaine users, after the calm down, after the big elevation, there's a calm down and usually you need something to kind of even you out. That was the first time I ever took opioids in my life. And uh, I took so much to a point where I actually, you, if you take three full pills of that dosage, you think you should be kind of on the other side already or OD'd, but I took like five or six um, and it was a snowstorm. I still remember it was a snowstorm. I was driving my buddy home. Everything was kind of kicking in. We're like feeling weird. Like what is going on? And right before this gas station, my tire blew off and I pulled into the gas station. And that's when all the drugs kicked in where I blocked out in my car versus while driving. So that from that experience itself, I know that it was God over me watching because that's, it's, you could say that it's a coincidence, but I, I mean, if, if you think about it, if I kept driving and I blacked out in my car, I could have killed somebody too. I could have went on the oncoming traffic, ran off, maybe even possibly killed my friend. Uh, instead, it just popped off right there, literally a hundred feet before the gas station pulled in. And a few minutes later, kind of everything kicked in. And uh, I got, I took a really expensive trip to the emergency room, which cost $20,000. They had to do a whole bunch of detox, uh, IVs, testing and stuff like that. And that's when I went through the first phase of, uh, court systems uh, came out surprisingly not guilty. They didn't find anything in my car, which was really weird, maybe maybe because of the lawyer. And then the second phase of that alcoholism as well, it was really fast, um, which kind of, that's why it, I kind of resonate with the Jordan Peterson said, clean your room. Because every time I had these experiences, the night that I came back from the hospital, I felt like Everything in my room was dragging me down. So I cleaned up my room, <laughs> you know, and I started journaling. I still have the journals with me, which pretty fascinating to read them some, from here. And then um, I was really back into meditation. I took um, I started taking micro LSDs again. Uh, I was looking for self-improvements, looking for like a career change. What did I want to do? I obviously started training jiu-jitsu again, which um, it's a cliche, but like I used to look at it as cliche. All my coaches say that you could see life through jujitsu. And that's where we're going to go into the podcast when you talk about um, you do somatic training. And I really 
kind of relate to that now is like, wait, you could relate everything to jujitsu, what kind of problem, difficult position you were in getting smashed. You know, it kind of relates to the outer experiences of this reality. And um, there was a second phase where I got another job, got back. It was like a really fast roller coaster. It was like two months. I got back with the same group again. And um, I went through the same phase when really fast alcohol, cocaine addiction. But at the same time, I, I always was skeptic. I was like, why am I still doing this? Like there was always a question every time we parted. I'm like, why am I still doing this? Um, and then one night I was partying for about like 48 hours. I barely even slept and I fell asleep, asleep behind my wheel right by my house. And I ran into my neighbor's um, front yard flower pot, like the brick thing. I crashed my car. And then after that, I did the same thing, clean my room, start journaling again, got back on my routine. I was sort of hanging out with the same people where it came to a halt of a half a dose of LSD where I was standing in the room with all those people. And I'm like, it just snapped out of my head. I'm like, this is not who I am. This is not what represents me. And I was calling them losers before because I was just young. I didn't understand. But everybody was just going through the same problems. They just didn't want to admit it, you know. Um, and I realized I was like, this is not for me. And it, like with the snap of the fingers and a half a dose of LSD, I just stopped and didn't have a craving or anything to do any drugs or anything after that. And sort of went into a journey and found a design and applied to a design school. And that's where I'm at kind of. Wow. So are you completely sober then? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I drink, I, I don't have the addiction to beer. I like beer. I think it's a Lithuanian, but I drink beer for different reasons. Like I go, I go to craft breweries. I really like the notes to tasting more, I guess the more of, um, they call it hipsters here, but I, I just enjoy sitting down versus, you know, getting smashed completely, uh, with your friends, you know, and not doing anything. I, I enjoy the, the history of how somebody created using different hops and stuff like that. I think that's more interesting. Mm -hmm. interesting yeah wow that's quite a story yeah <laughs> that's it's amazing a, it's a it's a roller coaster it's a fast fast one <laughs> mm -hmm. well congratulations for coming through all of that that's that's a lot that would take a lot of people out yeah thank you um and we actually uh talked with my best friend um i know it seems like weird for a lot of people but we laughed at it um when i left my friend i just stopped uh contacting him because he was still you know calling me at night to pick him up and doing this and i was like i just don't want to see those people i don't want to interact with the energy and um we were laughing because he was found passed out uh in the back of a parking lot of a store and he was taken to an emergency room but uh we talk about it he's like i try to kill myself but he didn't really try to kill himself because he had a butter knife and he was like but i couldn't do it because it hurt because it was a butter knife you know and we kind of laugh at it it's like because it's a butter knife it hurts versus you know i mean obviously it's not funny when you think if it was a sharp knife if he would have penetrated through but he was like i just couldn't do it because he's like the pain was so hard i just dropped it and and, and I, we just laugh it off at this moment and we're both sober and uh he's he kind of picked up bodybuilding as well and powerlifting you know is sort of going from a different addiction to a, a positive addiction and he's completely obsessed with uh, lifting super super heavy weights now wow that's amazing that's amazing so you still train jiu-jitsu i guess and you're doing yeah. a podcast and you're doing your design business so these are the main pillars yeah and uh, i'm gonna that's really crazy that you mentioned it um the first mushroom trip experience that i had um i came and it was like the deepest experience ever uh, i came in contacting I, I think what jordan peterson says um the father spirit and I really felt it and it felt like it was so direct and powerful. And maybe some people would, this 
it's disguised as something negative, but it was just powerful that I knew that whatever you say was almost like omnipotent. And in terms of that, it mentioned something that it is the way it is. And that's how everything is. And it was just that. And I was like, it is the way it is. But as the experience started elevating and I was peaking, um, I saw uh, a quarter-sized world floating above my head. And every time I thought of something, it was geometric blocks that opened up within the earth. And I somehow received these colorful messages that was flying through me. And at the peak of experience, I was sitting in the middle of my friend's basement and everybody got creeped out. So they left and which only one, my, one of my friends stayed that kind of was almost like a shaman watching over me because everybody felt weird that I was going through this experience, which happens a lot, you know, with people, they don't know what to do. They're like, oh, he's just, you know, just leave him alone or something. Um, I got on my knees and the spirit told me that I'm going to die. This is it. Like, this is ending. And I, all of a sudden, I started hearing this effect sounds that you come almost hear in the uh, epic movies of maybe like this wind blowing and this like this metal sound like almost like Batman Gotham like sounds going through. And he's like, this is what you're going to do. You're going to die. But you have to pick three things before you die. And I started hearing Joe Rogan's podcast and one of the passions was a podcast, obviously. And I've been running away from it for so long until like recently, I'm like, I'm going fully in. This is not going back. One of them was a podcast. I remember that I started hearing Joe Rogan's voice in the back of my head and all the previous episodes. The second one was jujitsu. And I started, I saw Elio Gracie, the creator of jujitsu, the masters, they were standing in front of me, watching over me. And then the third one was like art or design, which I do believe design because it gave me this perspective and, you know, that I've never had. And I, it was the three things right in front of me, uh, the carpet split. And it was like this medieval time. I was in front of a river, but it was a river of lava and it started splitting more and more. And once I picked them, I fell in head first and peed my pants <laughs> completely. And that was like the moment where I kind of realized that, uh, even to this day, I still remember this is if it's been following me for so long that it's it's I think it was meant to be. And I'm happy that a year ago, once I started design, it kind of gave me an opportunity to start a podcast because I always liked videos. And that's why I, I really um, enjoyed I really connected with Frank Yang when I was young uh, through Facebook days, because I think one of his videos says he wanted to be like um, a human asset trip. And I was like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to express myself in a way where it made people feel different watching my videos or maybe listening to me. And that was sort of like the pinnacle of uh, everything that kind of changed. <laughs> well, that brings us pretty much up to date, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Three, two, one, and we are recording. Thank you for coming on, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, we actually talked a lot beforehand. I'll put this video on, but um, it's I'm really glad that I uh, came across from you from Frank Gang, which I've been following you for 10 years. And uh, like I told you uh, before we started, uh, I fell into a rabbit hole of your content and the people that you have, the people that I've been following, Shinzen Young, Daniel Ingram, and you've been interviewing them for so long and just uh, fascination when I looked at your background, what you've been doing. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you, Paul. Nice to be here. 
Um, so I want to track back a little bit because we're going to go through all of the meditation and uh, different topics that you kind of discuss on your podcast. But I know that you were in a Scottish fencing team. And then I listened to one of the podcasts that you were um, training survival training in the North Arctic. So let's track back a little bit. How did you get into the Scottish fencing team and what was the process like? And I guess what impact uh, it had on you? Well, um, I started martial arts when I was about five and I really got into it. I fell in love with it, actually. Uh, it was uh, karate in those days. I grew up on the Shetland Islands, which is a little island north of Scotland. And there was a karate club there and I was doing that and I just got super into it, basically. Um, how I got into the, so that was sort of my start, if you want, in terms of martial arts, these sorts of things. And eventually I took up fencing, which Western fencing, you know, the sort of three musketeers style <laughs> fencing. And uh, I fell in love with that as well, you know, really kind of for similar, similar reasons, not exactly all the same reasons. And something that fencing afforded me that my uh, martial arts training did not afford me was competition more of a competition you know fencing it's all about that uh, whereas in the martial arts school uh, was of course very traditional we did do competing but i think especially at that time in my life say early teens going into my teens and so on i really thrived on the competition and so the way you get into the Scottish team, the way I was selected for the Scottish squad, as they say, is you do these various different tournaments, um, opens, and if you place well, uh, then, then you come to the attention of the selectors, then they, they select you. Uh, so I was actually selected um, for, on the Sabre team. Sabre is one of the three weapons, foil, epe, and Sabre are the three weapons. So I was on the Sabre team, I don't know, maybe I was 14, something around that age. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like how, um, martial arts sort of gave you this or were you always uh, immersed or had this nagging for doing something physical? Because we talked about like for me, jujitsu was one of those expressions as well. Like I like to move myself and I know that you do somatic training as well. Was that like the first counter where you where your body, I guess, naturally accepted it? Yes, I, I'd see. I do know what you mean. Yeah, Absolutely. I knew I was young, five, but I just took to it totally. I loved every part of it. I loved when we'd stand there and hold our arms out for, you know, five minutes or I don't know, it's probably only five minutes, but at that age, it feels like you're, it's really intense, you know. I loved the hard training. We'd do hard sparring and then stop suddenly and go into a kneeling position and meditate, you know, for five or 10 minutes and learn to control our breathing and do all these sorts of things. It's also, I think, probably want to be technical about it when I first meditated was in that class actually and uh, I love the physicality of it um, I love the I love the going through the body to straight to the character or going through the body straight to the mind I understood that somehow it clicked for me immediately I just got it and so yeah I think I've always had that physical expression part of my nature it seems mm -hmm. do you felt like uh did you pick up any meditation afterwards since, you know, it's, it's sort of, I don't know if every karate club meditates that it's really fascinating at, as at a young age, did that, do you feel like, did you pick up anything afterwards? Meaning did you go seek out different books to maybe get into 
you know, different states or you also felt like it was sort of like the first seed that planted in you? Yeah, it was interesting because the, the, I mean, the interesting thing about that meditation, I don't think it was ever called meditation, but we, it would be towards the end of the class and we're all you know, worn out, short of breath training. And then suddenly we'd, you know, Seiza, the teacher would call that Seiza, which is Japanese for kneeling, uh, which is a, a meditation position as well as just kneeling in general. And uh, we'd go down to the knees and it was a stop on the dime kind of thing. No particular instruction a lot of the time. It wasn't, you know, sort of, uh, but we were, we did occasionally give breath instruction. So one of the breath instructions was, uh, of course, you're huffing and puffing when you're tired out. And one of the instructions was to determine or relax the huffing and puffing and determine how much of the huffing and puffing was the body's need for oxygen and how much of the huffing and puffing was the mind's reassuring itself, kind of self-soothing. Because huffing, you know, you breathe to oxygenate, but that's not the only reason we breathe. We breathe for all kinds of other reasons too, to regulate our state. Um, you know, if you take a deep breath and, ah, you know, relaxes you and calms you down. So we do all sorts of things with the breath. And so it was noticing that and also learning to simmer like a sausage in the pan in the feeling of the oxygen debt, getting used to getting used to it, that feeling of oxygen debt so that it wouldn't panic you if you had to face it in a, you know, I suppose in a fight or something like that. So that was also, we were directed to the, those feelings and told to relax the body, even though of course on the inside it's, it's burning and yearning for oxygen uh, and to relax the emotional or psychological uh, flailing. And then also we did breath control where we would take a very long exhale and as com much as possible, completely empty the lungs. Of course, this is at the time when you just want to heave and hoe and get all the air in you. Very long whilst keeping the body relaxed. And then at the end, you know, like that, you know, short, sharp at the very end and then uh, relax and let the air come in passively and then very slow out and all this sort of stuff. So really, when I look back, quite fascinating stuff, quite interesting stuff and very formative actually uh, to be doing that at that age. I find it very formative and informative. And so, yeah, of course I was so, so obsessed with all that stuff that I, I bought all the books I could um, in the second hand. We have thrift stores, you know, in my, on the, and so I just go to the thrift stores. I had books on yoga, uh, which I would, try to do you know, old books on yoga, like uh, Richard Hittleman, <laughs> like that, which is an, I don't know if anyone knows Richard Hittleman, but it's a very old school sort of seventies, I guess, yoga and uh, things of that kind. And got lots of different martial arts books and, you know, martial arts and spirituality are related as you know, of course everyone yeah. knows that. And so it was naturally then you discover meditations and so on. And another important part, I mean, I was, um, raised in a uh, Catholic context. And I say that meaning I was an altar boy, you know, and my, my mother had this idea of um, a private faith or a personal faith, meaning we didn't really ascribe to the doctrinal tenets of Catholicism, mm -hmm. uh, but the mass, the ritual of the mass was a place for your own private or personal relationship with God, if I speak in Catholic terms, you know, with God, sort of kind of mysticism-y kind of sense. And uh, mysticism in the sense of direct experience, as opposed to um, a sort of more theological or doctrinal experience of religion. 
And so the priest that we had there was a very deep man, Jesuit, and a, a very quiet. We, I was the altar boy in the early morning mass with no singing. So no hymns, no guitars, no tambourines, just the raw ritual of the mass. And it's choreographed. For those of you who don't know, it's sort of a choreographed ritual, uh, which, uh, you know, as an altar boy, you have a, your candle and you wear the sort of dress thing. And you move the candle over here and you take the cup and you give it to the guy. And then there's this whole thing. And I did that for years and years. And uh, you just, in a ritual, you good ritual, you just kind of empty out, just completely empty out. And you're just a part of this uh, ritual. And you know, I had a lot of profound uh, experiences there. So that, I think, does figure in somewhat uh, to this idea of, you know, meditation and my background in in meditation and movement, because the ritual is a sort of moving meditation in a sense. Have you, uh, during those phases, have you ever experienced any of uh, transcendental uh, like moments or had like, uh, I guess, ecstasy almost working? Because I, I, I was, uh, I went to a Catholic school as well when I was still living in Lithuania. And when my parents were in the US, uh, I lived right next to a Catholic church and I was in the Catholic homework club after, so I'm familiar with that. And I, even though, you know, when you're young, I was a naive kid, I kind of denied it. I felt better being around those people in general, just in the, I guess, in their presence. So I, I just want to ask you if you had any of uh, mystical experiences growing up because you were kind of involved in that. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, that's what it was all about uh, for me. Um, because my mother had this idea of private faith, we didn't ever go to the kind of Catholic homework clubs or the uh, catechism where usually in a mass or often in a mass, all the children will go out at a certain time and, or after the, the mass, people will get, the children will get together and have classes, catechism classes where they're taught the tenets of the faith and they color in, you know, I guess, pictures of Jesus walking on water and stuff. I mean, and stuff like that. But my mother used to say that anyone who wants to teach catechism probably shouldn't teach catechism. Like they say about the joke about politicians, you know, anyone who wants <laughs> to be a politician probably shouldn't be a politician. And so uh, we, you know, we, I was exposed, of course, to the basic idea and the basic doctrinal tenets. And I learned more about it later, but uh, not in a sort of formal catechism kind of way. I was just really involved in the, in the ritual part. And uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of transpersonal experiences at that time, for sure. Like, I guess you want me to say one, right? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay. Um, I remember, yeah, I remember one, for example, uh, sitting uh, behind the, the priest, the sort of the older boys have their little bench, you know, behind the, behind where the priest is doing his part. And I was sitting there and like I mentioned, there's this tremendous feeling of emptying out that can happen. You're just so empty, so vast. And on one occasion, I recall, I think it happened a lot, actually. It felt like my whole head kind of opened up, you know, like my whole head kind of like totally opened up into this sort of presence or into this spaciousness, into this kind of everywhereness, that kind of feeling. And it always was colored by this flavor of, of love and this flavor of intimacy. So it was not impersonal, impersonal kind of thing. So I, you know, I had lots of experiences like that. Uh, very, I guess the mind gets very quiet 
and the perspective increases or expands or shifts in some way. So I had lots, I mean, I could go on about all the different sorts of experiences, but that's an example. Um, going through that, those stages and being, I guess, in that environment, uh, did you know what you wanted to do? Do you want it, did you want it to be part of it as you grow up or you had sort of a, a different, uh, map of what you wanted to do? In terms of what I wanted to do with my life growing up? Yeah. Not, yeah. not directly, you know, not having maybe, cause it, it is sort of hard when you're young to have, you know, an exact purpose, like this is what exactly I'm going to do. Because when you look at it, it's only a small percentage of people that commit to that. But did you kind of have a map already or direction where you wanted to go? Yeah, I had uh, really hilarious aims as a, as a child in terms of what I wanted to be when I grew up, what I assumed I'd be. Um, I wanted to be a Catholic priest for a while uh, when I was a kid because I just really liked that stuff. I mean, I didn't know much about <laughs> what a priest is or does or really the religion to be honest with you in its specifics but i loved that thing you know that i would try to describe here this sort of sacred space of um of connectivity whatever you call it i mean hard to say exactly so i really loved that a great deal and uh so i wanted to be a catholic priest i also wanted to have my own martial arts school you know i remember telling that to my uh, careers counselor we have these careers counselors don't you have them in the states and you're supposed to tell them what you want to do. And then they'll tell you, you know, that you can't do that. I think that's generally how they come. <laughs> so they said, you know, you can't, you know, don't be a, they said, you don't be, a, you shouldn't be a priest. Okay. You shouldn't be a, you know, you can't run your own martial arts school. You can do that as a hobby, but no one ever makes any money from that and so on and so forth. You know, later on, I wanted to be in the army, uh, you know, stuff like that. So I had all these kinds of ideas because, you know, I was, my heroes at that time were people like Bruce Lee. Yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, I loved, uh, uh, I read all of Bruce Lee's book by hand. I used to, in those days, what I used to love to do, I don't know what, why I got this idea, but I would copy books out. Oh, it says my internet's unstable. Dum -da -dum. Okay. I would uh, copy books out by hand with all the diagrams. So Tao of Jeet Kune Do is kind of, I suppose, Bruce Lee's, um, sort of main work in a way and i'd write all the little diagrams and there's a lot of taoist stuff in there and i'd copy yeah, everything yeah. so I, I i have a, a handwritten copy of the dive you can do and i also loved um arnold schwarzenegger's book which i actually can get it <laughs> uh i think it's right here is it the bodybuilding uh encyclopedia or no no that's a newer one there was an old one A little while since I've put my hand on it. Um, I hope this isn't giving you. No, 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 no. This is actually interesting. As live as we could get. Uh, yeah, maybe. I think it's actually over there in the in the other shelf. But um, yeah, he had, this, he had this other book, which is which is a biography. As he well, did, he as, did a lot of uh, transcendental meditation as well. He mentioned. Yeah, that's true. I didn't know about that part at that time. So, you know, these are guys that, from what I could see, just did what they liked. Uh, I mean, they did what they enjoyed. You know, Bruce Lee was a martial arts guy. He had his own martial arts school. And he was, then he went into TV and film because he wanted to be an actor and so on, which was not an ambition that I've ever had. And Arnold Schwarzenegger loved to work out. I loved to work out. I couldn't wait to start doing weight training. You know, I just couldn't wait. And I was always designing my own routines, body weight routines, based on what I found in Bruce Lee's uh, books and so on. So I just, you know, those that thought that 
that's a that's what people do i just kind of i was a little bit strange that way so i would just tell that to my guidance teacher my guidance counselor and then of course they tell you that you know what did they what did she recommend you do um well actually one of them said i should be a spy because this was when i said i would fascinating yeah she said "You, you should what do you want to do and i said oh I don't know. I, by then I'd realized I can't say priest. I can't say um, a martial arts guy. So they, she said, um, so I, I came up with different things. I said, oh, I'll be in the army. I think I'll be in the army. Because I like the idea also of physical, you know, getting out there and being in physical. I, mean, I didn't like the idea of killing people. Yeah. You don't think like that when you're that age. You, know, you don't think about actually what you're going to do. Like I didn't think what a priest would really be like either. But um, I just liked the physical part. So I said, I'll be in the army, I think. And she said, no, no, no. She was Austrian. No, no, no. You shouldn't be in the army. It's just you'll be cold and wet, you know, walking through the fields. And I thought, that's brilliant. That's I like that idea. And she said, you should be a spy. So she said, I should be a spy. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't remember what else they said to me, but yeah, spy or something. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be a terrible spy. I'm too conspicuous. <laughs> Can you imagine? I don't think I'd blend in. It's the spy. Maybe it's it would be a maybe you would be a good double agent. <laughs> yeah, I have the spy beard already in place. All I need is the glasses, right? And then I'm, then I would look like classic disguise. <laughs> um, going into, um, I guess the first time that you started obviously competing in, uh, the first time you started touching like sabers and different weapons, uh. Is that something that naturally came on to you? Because I, I know that a lot of people I, I was watching, I was fascinated always with the axe throwing. Um, how was that the first contact that is such a young age being around, you know, around weapons that most of the people kind of shelter you away from, uh, especially here in the United States. It's like, hey, you're playing with, you know, knives and hammers. That's definitely not what a 14 year old kid should do. Really? Uh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, when I was growing up, um, we, we had toy knives and toy guns, and I mean, yeah, you kind of you kind of have those, but as over here, it's more of maybe sports orientated. You know, why 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 aren't you so normal? Go play football or basketball, you know, versus take on something that you did. Yeah, well, I mean, I I guess in UK fencing is kind of considered in that category of of being a regular sport, and the weapons are safe weapons. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're blunt, and uh, you know, you're not really going to actually injure someone with them. You bruise them, maybe. You know. <laughs> did Did you feel like they empower you in some way, in in some sense, like knowing how to handle them, or you know, know knowing what they're used for at such a young age, the application, I guess, of it. Yeah, I think. Martial arts in general, including fencing, just number one, uh, it gives you a, tr- a huge amount of body intelligence. And body intelligence is in, in a really important thing, especially if you can develop it young. It is, it is a sort of very, very good thing to have. Also, you get used to what it means to be in confrontation or competition. I think that's essential also to be, learn how to get beaten and learn how to learn how to win um, and le- learn what that whole process is about to try to, I think it's very important. It was very important for me. I was very competitive actually. And also it gives you a lot of other intelligences like distance, learning about distance, you know, fencing, a lot of it's about distance and timing really. And that's the same with, with 
certain kind of stand-up martial arts. I mean, a lot of it's distance control, right? And that's very important to have a good, which means you have to have an awareness, situational awareness. Very, very good indeed. And also knowing how to fight at, even if it's, you know, knowing how to fight at a young age and and knowing how to get hit and knowing how to hit, uh, et cetera, very useful in school when inevitably fights are there, bullies are there. It's good to know how to handle yourself. And at that age, um, everyone's kind of the same size more or less and if and, and people are not really very hardened so if you if someone's bullying you and you get into a fight and you can actually produce some sort of skill and some sort of force then it neutralizes the situation very clearly quickly as you get older that doesn't work because as you get older you're going to encounter people who also know how to fight you know, like adults are you gonna and the stakes are very much higher and someone's size really makes a difference and the stakes I uh, mentioned are very, very serious. And you can't, you know, so getting in fights as an adult is not a very smart thing at all. Um, but at a young age, at least the capacity to fight is good. You, you, yeah, you, you get a sense of confidence that way. I, I do think it's quite empowering. I don't know, using a sword is, it is useful to know how to use a stick. Yeah. <laughs> that comes in handy, you know, you know to people that often waving sticks around and, you know, to have the ability to do that. Um, it is you know you it is kind of interesting useful i guess in an apocalypse if they, as long as they don't have a gun and i have a stick <laughs> a sharp stick you know i it would at least i'd at least die stylishly <laughs> um let's transition a little bit i've heard that you did um the arctic uh training and it was a cold training i'm pretty sure i want to say maybe with steve james on the podcast um when did you get into that and how did that kind of come together? And what was that a whole experience like? Yeah, well, I was something I was interested in a lot is survival training, um, you know, outdoors survival training and so on. And so, yeah, I did do a course in the Arctic and the Arctic Circle in, in northern Sweden. It was an 11 day course in February very, very cold, minus 24 Celsius uh, in the daytime, which Canadians always uh, mock me and say, say that's nothing, but it was well, pretty cold. It's enough, it's enough to you know, cause you some damage if you make, it, make a mistake. Uh, but that was very interesting indeed. Um, yeah, what did you, did you have a specific question about it or? Yeah, um, I guess coming in with the cold, you know, uh, every, I think one of the driving uh, people that uh, is, um, what's his name, the Iceman, um what's his first name wim hof wim hof yeah yeah he was sort of like in the past two years that brought up you know the cold training the cold showers and stuff like that what was it like did you guys experience anything like that or do specific exercises going in you know the swedish uh saunas and going out and maybe the cold water and training your body to it because actually the microphone that i have uh, the book on uh, yesterday was oddly enough i uh it's a physiological uh, book. I opened it up and um, it kind of gave you a whole timeline of different stages of cold training and what your body starts producing. So I'm just curious, like, what was the training like there? What did it specifically, um, what was the course like, I guess? Yeah, it was, um, <clears throat> I was very into Wim Hof at the time, actually. Oh, really? Uh, so, so, yeah, I, I was, I, I really uh, totally was captivated by, by, by those ideas. Before actually Wim Hof blew up, that's a very hipstery thing to say before he was cool, you know, and all that, but, but I was into it before then because I had, I, you know, I had a lot of friends in Amsterdam. I was there a lot working. And so of course being Dutch, the Dutch have known about him for a long time as well. He's known there. And so they introduced me to his ideas. And uh, well, the training was based on the British military 
training, which is usually done in uh, Norway. And the trainers, one of them was uh, ex-RAF and Sears trainer, uh, Conrad Allen, and the other was um, Swedish military guy. And so that was the basic format. It's, it's basic, based a little bit on uh, the uh, survival training that they give the British military, they told us, in Norway, with some important modifications for civilians. And it was the first time, actually, that they'd offered that course to civilians. So we, uh, there was 11 of us, uh, no, 10 of us uh, that did it. And uh, it was the first few days were all about learning uh, the basics. And the basics are your clothing and layering system. In the Arctic, if you sweat, they say you die. And it's very easy to sweat when you start to move. And you, you've got all your clothes on, you're looking like uh, South, someone out of South Park, you know, like the kids out of South Park. And then, of course, you start moving and you've got to de-layer. So it's all about managing layers. And that's how you manage your temperature with layers. Uh, and then, of course, you've got to learn all about how to make shelters. You've got to learn all about how to navigate, um, et cetera, et cetera. What else do we do? Stuff like that. Yeah, things, things like that. Uh, special considerations when making fires in the Arctic. Um, uh, th you know, things to do if you're in, if, you know, because it's a survival training, it's really training you not only just how to s survive or to operate, but also what happens if things go wrong? Mm -hmm. What happens if you, how do you, what are the signs of hypothermia and what can you do? So yeah, we learned some, some cold uh, techniques, certain movements that you do in order to keep the blood flowing to your extremities, uh, certain things you must always be careful not to let slip, like you mustn't go to sleep with cold hands or you'll wake up with no fingers, things like that. There's a lot of stuff. So it's very stressful because the cold is oppressive and constant. And they said to us that within a few days, we're going to love it or hate it. I ended up loving it because that continuous press of the cold, which is quite claustrophobic and quite terrifying, actually, when you don't know really its natures and the parameter the parameters of the human body in that condition, in that situation, if you don't know what you're doing, it is quite frightening. And I felt when I walked, just stepped off the bus, I, I felt fear, a sort of biological fear. Because of the unknown probably, right? Yeah, exactly. I didn't know what my tolerances were. I didn't know what were the important things to, and that's what, this is why I think people should do survival training because, you know, if you do get lost or something happens, into contact with is the fact that they don't know what to do they don't know what, what you know food shelter water they don't understand the way a human being dies the order in which you die the order in which things can kill you and so you need to know that so you can plot the correct course in terms of the actions you take and it, it's pretty straightforward actually but if you don't know what it is you'll start doing really strange things like trying to hunt stuff when you should be you know without shelter and now it rains and you get hypothermia and you're dead in four hours or something like that so it was quite, uh, but it was wonderful because the cold is oppressive and it's constant, but it's always, it's always the same. It always behaves the same way. It's, it's not personal to you. It's not out to get you. Um, it's just cold. So when you learn how to manage that, uh, it, you just start to kind of work within the environment. And then after that training period, we uh, had a testing period where they took us out into the, in pairs, out into the, you know, the great white beyond. And dropped us off in different places and over the course of uh two or three nights we had to hit certain waypoints for camping in our pairs and make our way back to the the base camp and they would monitor us then 
uh, when we put all our skills into action and so on, monitor us to make sure we weren't dying and they watch us with drones. And then each night they come and check our camp. Each of our pairs had different camps in different locations just to make sure that we weren't, you know, that we were on top of things. And this yeah. this was this year, right? You, you did it in February or was it? Oh, no, this was, oh gosh, this is a while ago. Yeah, oh, a while ago. Okay. Five, I was just, I was going to ask you if it was before you started doing uh, podcasting and more of uh, this type of work. Yeah, four or five years ago, I think that was. Mm-hmm. Which kind of leads us to, um, I saw that you were doing somatic training. Can you explain a little bit for regular people what somatic uh, practices are? Yeah, I mean, somatic just means of the body. Soma mean, meaning the body. So, uh, of course, we've talked a bit about some of my background, physical background. And beyond that point, I've done a lot of uh yoga and qigong and all other kinds of physical explorations i guess a lot of strength training and just exploring things and uh, over the years i put together a kind of a way of doing things a, a sort of method if you want yeah, yeah. That, I, that i call movement cohen method and it's a kind of um combination of uh, joint nour- nourishing movements as well as uh, um sort of riddles if you want bodily riddles a koan is a kind of a riddle they use it in zen training it's a bit crude to call it a riddle uh, but nonetheless it's questions like what's the sound of one uh hand clapping and does a dog have buddha nature your roshi your zen teacher will give that to you a koan like that or who am i or show me your face before you were born something like that and then you meditate on this koan and it's one of the tools they use in Zen. It's one of their techniques to bring about insight. And so uh, these movement koan methods are not concept. These movement koans are not conceptual. They're physical. So we do things in the body uh, that are, if you want, lenses or inquiries, access to uh, certain investigations. So we, have set, we set up bodily riddles, basically. So it's a way of moving that uh, is just nice for the body. And old people do it. Kids do it. All around the world, people people do that. Um, but it also has this additional element of inquiry or inquiry through the body, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, like, since I saw you have the course and uh, you were training different workshops, um, some of the insights or some of, I guess, the transformations you saw in people doing the Kona training and body training? Yeah, um, some of the transformations. Well, what people report because I have two DVD downloads on my site as well, grooveviking.com. So some people I'm, you know, I do it with them in person, teach them in person. Other people, they get the DVD download. Um, yeah, people report uh, feeling much more in their body, the tissues opening up, uh, developing that bodily intelligence. This is the sort of thing that people also report. Uh, a kind of uh, becoming more at home in their body, more comfortable uh, in their body and more, um, agile and uh, this sort of thing it's usually what people report uh, you know there's I, I know one mother for instance was telling me she has uh, an autistic child and he loves to do it because some you know i weave a bit of humor in uh, as we go along and, uh, it's kind of part of my personality and so there's one uh, called tickling the hamster there's a movement called <laughs> tickling the hamster <laughs> and he loves tickling the hamster he's always talking about tickling the hamster you know and I say, why, why do we tickle the hamster? Two reasons. Number one, he likes it. And number two, there's fingers at the ends of our arms and you're feeling all the way down. So it's a way of wiggling your fingers, right? Like tickling a hamster. Anyway, he loves it. 
so uh, that that was nice to hear. I, I know you know I know some older people like to do it uh, uh, also, and yeah, just people enjoy it for those reasons. It's sort of like um, a lighter way of training versus maybe seeing the uh, intimidating side of weightlifting or something. Exactly. It's um, I suppose from a you know jujitsu point of view, or if we're talking about scales of of training, uh, it's on the more mobility end. I would say mobility and uh, neuroplasticity, uh, developing that. So it's not hard training, particularly, at least not in the DVD downloads. There are aspects of it that are hard training. That's got a more strength training aspect. We do that in person, but I don't have that on a DVD yet. Balance training, things like that, how to get up and down off the ground, how to move limbs independently and in different directions at different speeds, um, whilst re remaining relaxed, this sort of thing. Um, were you, since obviously we spoke about how you got introduced into meditation through karate, maybe not directly knowing what meditation exactly was, but were you still kept that, uh, routine or till you were growing up till now, uh, or was you kind of skipped out and came back to it later in life or what was the development like? And I guess, why did you still, if you still kept prolonging it, why did you start meditating? Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, it was kind of part and parcel with the martial arts thing. And, and as you read books about martial arts and you watch martial arts movies and things, you, that's what they talk about, that aspect. You, know, you see the Shaolin monks doing the, in the movies and Kung Fu movies and things like that. There's always some sort of spiritual or pseudo-spiritual, anyway, aspect to it. Um, at that age, I don't think it matters. Yeah. When you're 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, I don't think it matters if it's spiritual or pseudo-spiritual because uh, at that age, you have such an openness yeah. And such a such a uh, yeah directness, I suppose, that you can just even do a kind of fake meditation from a that you see in a movie, and it it's it, you're 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 doing a meditation of sorts. So and, uh, you know, of course, I had the the Catholic background too. And in my teens, um, I was apprentice to a Christian mystic uh, for two or three years. Um, he was a writer, and I was I had ambitions at that time to be a writer. I'd written some things, and uh, so I met him through writing and so i was his sort of pa and assistant uh, as in terms of my employment uh, for that period of time and on the side or at the same time uh, a spiritual apprentice actually uh, sort of elijah elisha model of that for those of you who know the, the sort of biblical side of things that's that was the explicit relationship that we had and so there we did lots of meditations if we if we think of meditation in terms of just general contemplative techniques yep. as opposed to maybe sitting watching your breath if we have a broad definition so there was lots of meditation there lots of very strange things you know walking up and down hills uh praying and going to you know sort of geomancy of that kind uh i mean i could it would, it would pretty far out to be honest with you and so yeah i always and i did lots of prayer so i'd always spent lots of time praying uh reading the bible contemplating the Bible at that time, doing this sort of way of reading the Bible, which I sort of came upon naturally, but I ended up discovering later as a technique where you really put yourself in the, you put yourself into it, sort of really visualize it. Um, and I, I had some really remarkable moments doing that. So I was very devout, <laughs> you know, I was very devout. And then there was definitely a period of time when, you know, I was sort of, I think, intolerably and embarrassingly devout. You know, was there not a, lot of, um, not a lot of fun at parties when it comes to uh, yeah. When it comes, yeah yeah when it comes to uh prayers um yeah. 
Do you see that in relation to sort of what we have floating around like affirmations and, you know, these self-talks? Does that kind of relate to, you know, the, I don't want to say buzzwords of today, but it really is sort of, you know, a overused word when you have these, you know, self-talks and uh, motivations. Do you think that relates because you're kind of taking yourself out of the context itself? It's almost like a meditation. And you're, you said you're imagining the technique was imagining um, what was written in the book, like yourself or what? Oh, yeah, that was that was one of them. I mean, pr- prayer is is very diverse. It's another word like meditation that means many, many different things. So sometimes, uh, yeah, that technique I was describing, um, you, you read the Bible sort of slowly and you and you meditate on each by meditate here. I meet it really in more in the Western sense. You contemplate, contemplate. Um, uh, you contemplate it not only in terms of its theological meaning, mm-hmm. but also you try to contemplate it bodily. You can read, for instance, through the Gospels and really try to put yourself in the Gospels. And you can almost get the feeling of your feet on the ground, uh, walking with Jesus and co through the Gospels. You always feel the sun and the dust and the sweat of what it must have been like. Uh, uh, You know, that's uh, uh, certainly a style. There's also other kinds of prayer, of course, which is prayer of petition, where you're praying and asking for things, you know, can I have a Mercedes Benz and all that sort of stuff? Please heal Aunt, Aunt Mabel and, you know, that sort of stuff. Look after so-and-so and, you know, help me in my exam and this sort of stuff. Uh, but there's also prayer uh, sort of marinating in the presence of God. Um, so they call it sometimes fellowship with God. But, you know, I, I don't really operate or think of myself in a, in a Christian context these days. I'm not not Christian, but I'm not really a Christian. And I'm talking now kind of in the language that I might have used at the time. Yeah. And so there you're not particularly asking for anything. You're more kind of maybe uh, marinating in certain qualities, qual- got, uh, divine qualities like, you know, uh, love or care or kindness or wisdom. In that sense, it's really rather similar to Buddhist Brahma Vihara practice, yes. where you also will use certain mantras. They use mantras in, in the Buddhist um, Brahma Vihara practice. And occasionally visualizations and you sort of marinate in compassion or loving kindness or something like this. You do the same thing in, uh, in Christian terms. So you're sort of hanging out in the presence of God as they say it, marinating in, in the certain qualities. And then there are other things you can do where you imagine you think of a person. We did this a lot with the Christian mystic. You think of a person like I might think of you, for example, let's say you're on my list, my hit list. <laughs> yeah of prayer people people to pray for and then you'd sit there and or lay there sometimes actually laid stretched stretched out or kneeling or and there's many different positions and then you'd think okay let's think of paul you know think of paul and you try to see through god's eyes so you in other words you drop into your heart that's the feeling you connect with that current of god's love or care or kindness or wisdom these sorts of things that you're marinating in in your own meditations and then from that place you can use sort of declarative language to sort of wish good things for you specifically but the idea is it's from that place of of love or care it's not just it wouldn't be just me little stevie thinking uh, at that age trying to think of nice things for you well, that's not bad to do but you really sense of what's and this is the words they use what's god's heart in the matter and so you really try to feel it from that point of view and so it's a training in viewing others with the eyes of God, which is through the heart. 
that's that's an explicit training that's done in Christian contemplative traditions. So you start to see people as God sees them, uh, not in the sense that you can know all their details of their life uh, necessarily, although that is a training as well, but uh, uh, more like the perspective rather than looking at you from my side. What, what good are you to me? Are you a friend? Are you an enemy? Kind of self-concern. But actually thinking of you uh, from kind of God's side, seeing you with love, seeing you with care, kindness, this sort of thing. This is an explicit training. And just like in the Brahma Viharas, you do it for yourself. You do it for your friends. You do it for your enemies. You do it for everybody. You do it for situations. Um, you, it's really rather similar practice to the Brahma Viharas and very embodied and very um, multi-sensory. So, uh, yeah, we did a lot of things of, of that nature. And then sometimes you write all that stuff down. <laughs> um, what was the difference? Uh, I actually, we talked about like the topics. Um, I was really curious, the Celtic, like the Celtic tradition of Christianity, mm -hmm. like what's the difference between that? And because I, I, I'm familiar a little bit with, I saw a whole bunch of Celtic symbols that, are Christian related, uh, beautiful, obviously symbols, but I never looked into it. What was the difference between them two or maybe a different uh, aspects of it? Yeah, well, Celtic or Christianity, Celtic. well, yeah, Celtic, Celtic, um, Celtic Christianity historically um, is, is characterized by the fact that the expression of Christianity in the British Isles in its nascent stages was uh, had, had some idiosyncrasies. There were certain things that the Irish, Welsh, and Scottish, and some of the English churches did that were a little bit different to the more to the official Roman style. Because as you as you know, um, Christianity as it went into different places, like most religions do, Buddhism's done the same. You know, uh, they sort of pick up and adopt and repart or frame a lot of the indigenous uh, spiritual. Uh, traditions or festivals or practices. So that's often the case. I mean, explicitly in Buddhism, for instance, when Padmasambhava went to Tibet, he kind of, you could say, recruited their local deities and the mountain spirits and all that sort of thing. Recruited them, um, hired them, I guess, to be protectors of the Buddhism. And they were, in a, in a certain sense, given a place. And their traditions were given a place within the Buddhist um, religion. And that happened a lot of places where Christianity went as well. Christianity in its earlier days, I mean, not its very early days, but when it was sort of spreading and spreading, really quite diverse, many different kinds, very, very many different beliefs. It got more and more homogenous, of course, over time, but there's quite a lot of diversity. And there was some interesting, unique and diverse, uh, different from the Roman style, even though it was Catholic, uh, features, if you want, of of the church in Britain. So that's, they call that Celtic Christianity or sometimes they call it insular Christianity because it's sort of local, right? Interestingly enough, they say that this idea of confession, which I think we know in the Catholic church, uh, probably everyone knows it from like the Da Vinci code and things like that, where you go in and you tell the priest your, what you've done, your naughty sins and so on. <laughs> and then the priest gives you some sort of prayers or some penance to do and off you go and do your 10 Hail Marys. Um, apparently that was something started in the Irish church in the old, before that time, the uh, penance was done publicly. People would come in dressed in sackcloth and ashes and so on in the sort of good old Testament style and publicly declare their sins and have this sort of public absolution. And 
uh, the private confessional uh, approach was something developed apparently, um, I wasn't there, at least I don't recall if I was there, um, was developed in Ireland, the one-on-one thing. So, and then it was sort of exported through the church in general. And there are some other uh, unique qualities of Celtic Christianity also, but mm-hmm, that's the idea. What were the stages of, you know, uh, I don't even know where to start in terms of how did you come into, I, I could see it as it's, it's, it definitely shines to me as it's your purpose to spread this message and talk to people and communicate. And I guess what we call today, elevate consciousness, like collective consciousness. What was like the first encounter with uh, a spiritual teacher that kind of made a difference and you started opening up to these topics and uh, learning a little bit more about different uh, ways of, I guess, uh, meditating spirituality. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting this interview because we're talking about stuff that I don't normally talk about very much because people don't normally ask (laughs) in as much detail as you've asked about these early days. And I don't know how related it is to the things I do these days, but it's interesting. It's fun to talk about for me, but I don't know how interesting it is to others, but uh, well, I suppose my early, I mean, I think that priest, that first priest, I'd consider him a pretty significant spiritual influence. Um, maybe my early first karate teacher, maybe in a certain sense, in a certain kind of sense, because this guy, he, he was a, he wasn't just a strip mall karate guy. He, it wasn't like that. For him, it was a way of life. It was something very serious, very humble and uh, very physical, uh, really classical in that sense. <clears throat> no doubt the Christian mystic, was an, was an influence also, uh, I would say, spiritually. G- you know, going forward from there, uh, Godfrey Devereaux, yoga teacher and meditation teacher, I studied yoga with him, learned to become a yoga teacher uh, with him. He's very influential. He's a Zen, also Zen training and also background in Montessori, which is relevant. And then for many years now, my main meditation teacher has been Shinzen Young. Shinzen Young. Um, who people perhaps know as an American meditation teacher. And I've done many retreats with him. And I think he's really a a really major influence and certainly in the way I present meditation when I teach it. Um, Other significant teachers, uh, Glenn Mullen, uh, a a Tibetologist and uh, teacher of tantric Buddhist meditation has been a significant influence also uh, lately. uh, yeah, some other people like that. I mean, in terms of the Qigong side, I, I've mostly uh, done Qigong uh, with or with the teachers of Bruce Francis, who's a American Qigong guy. I mean, that's not really a spiritual influence, I wouldn't say. So perhaps that not, needn't be on this list. And I haven't done a great deal with him, but that's the Qigong I have done has been with him. Uh, I'm probably missing people. I'd say those are the main ones that I studied with in person. Of course, then you read it, you read all the books and you, you have deep, you know, influences like Bruce Lee, you know, probably deep teachers of me, but of course I never met him. You know, I mean, I copied his stuff out and used to memorize passages of his stuff and quote it and things like that when I was a kid. So of course that's, I had a deep you know, spiritual sort of sense. Cause it's very, very spiritual, his stuff. But I never met him, so I don't know if we could include him. If we had start to include people that I'd read that had influenced me, then that would be a much, really rather much longer list. And how did you, I guess, from a business standpoint point of view, you know, when they, when somebody looks at you, and, and mine myself is when I speak to you and I definitely see, it's almost like you've 
you're able to put your passions into work. And it's, it's like truly amazing when you think about it. Did you have this vision of, you know, teaching and doing workshops and stuff like that before? Or was there a period of time, like we spoke before the podcast, where you got to co- go through a transition, get a nine to five job, and then, you know, it's chews you up, spits you out. And then you're like, oh, I had enough of this, you know, and I, I'm starting my own. Uh, how did all, how did this all start coming together? What you're kind of doing now and helping people? Uh, well, yeah, I did have a nine to five job once for a, for a Christmas period. Uh, so I was doing um, temp. I, I took a Christmas temp job. I guess I must have been 18. Um, at I didn't have much money at that time, and at the local W. H. Smiths, which is sort of uh, kind of uh, stationery store slash Christmas card slash you know department store, and I was the last person who was on their temp staff who joined them. And so I had a job of basically just got to just get a list at the beginning of my shift and go around and do things. I wasn't tied to a, a register, for instance. And um, I quickly discovered that if I put my break a little bit later and so that, you know, it wasn't just halfway through my day, it was maybe three quarters of the way through the day. Then I felt like the, after my break, it felt much nicer if I delayed the break. Right. So then I would delay and I kind of was in charge of my own break because I had this sort of floating around job. So I take my break a little bit later, five minutes later, each day. Five, and it was a game. How late could I take my break in terms of how, um, and I'd watched the effect on my mind, on this, on my psychology. And it felt good to sort of delay my break even further because I accept that little bit, you know, pain now. And I feel like, yeah, no, I'm going to, when I come back from a break, I'll, I'll be laughing, you know, and I delayed it and delayed it and delayed it until one day I went to the supervisor and I said, supervisor, I can take my break whenever I want. Right. And she said, yeah. What if I take my break 20 minutes before I leave? And then she said, but your break is 20 minutes. And I said, exactly. What if I did that? And then I can leave 20 minutes early. And she looked at me like I was insane, but she thought for a moment and she, I mean, you can take it whenever you want. If you want to take it at the end, like a total weirdo, you can. So I said, all right. So then for the rest of the time I was there, I did my break at the very end and I'd, I'd walk out 20 minutes early, <laughs> feeling like I'd somehow, you know, bossed the world. I was like, yeah, it was so great. So that was my nine to five job. But after that, you know, I just do the things I like just find ways, you know, if you're enthusiastic about stuff and you have some skill and you, and you're, um, you know, you find ways to offer value with what you're interested in. Of course, that's the heart of business, isn't it? Yeah. Offering people value. And that's, that's the, uh, that's the big game of business. If you get really good at delivering people value, then there's always possibilities there. Some people see business, I think, as how to get money out of people. Yep. Um, but that part's easy if you can actually offer good value. It seems the real game, I think, is how can I make give even more value, not just that they're using. How can I give even more benefit? Or what if I rethink this entire thing? Is there some way I can make it bigger or better uh, with maybe even using the same or less work, re-envisioning all the time, trying to get levers, leveraging your time, leveraging your activity and your energy to create value? That's, I think, the heart of business, isn't it? Uh, I noticed that everybody that goes into, you know, passion work, whether it's art or whatever other expressive uh, processes uh, people go after, they have a 
weird perception about money. Like they feel guilt taking money. But like you said, um, I've had the same thing actually in design as well. When you're offering a service, it's like, oh, I don't know if, uh, you know, I should offer a little bit more. And, you know, the whole aspect of the psychological, I think, approaches to like raising your own value, seeing your own worth. Um, and then people kind of down talk to money. It's like, oh, but I don't want to be like this money making machine or I'm not, I don't want to do sales and this and that. W- was your perception always kind of similar to what I'm talking about or what was your perception about of money uh, growing up? Because I, I know that there's a lot of influences from uh, parents and, you know, family members, because specifically for me, you know, being from a post-communist country, I do have a lot of, and I still notice today, these uh, communist tendencies of maybe trying to aim for security a little bit more, just kind of, you know, in meditation terms, like letting go completely and going after what you want. And it's sort of, it's sort of paradoxical because it does really, once you let go of everything, it does really start coming to you what you really wanted. So I just wanted to ask you, like, what was your perception of money before then? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of this stuff is depends on your personality type mm-hmm. or your temperament. It's not always the same. Mm-hmm. uh for everybody and <clears throat> i do think a lot of the way i do things is really down to just kind of how i'm wired um i'm not sure if it would work for everybody else but i identified in my early 20s early 20s a kind of aversion um towards um not towards money itself but towards uh well i didn't like to check my bank account my strategy was make as much as I can and spend as little as I can. And that's not, that's, that's a better strategy than make as little as you can and spend as much as you can. I mean, there are worse strategies, but it's not a very good strategy. Um, really. It's not a very nuanced strategy going forward. Right. And I noticed that and just the same with survival training or other things, you know, and I notice a weakness or I notice something that's not, that's a little bit of a gray area. I really like to, 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 to charge into it and well, charge, maybe it's not the right word inch perhaps. <laughs> inch into it and start to unravel it a little bit um see what's going on so i wrote a list starting at the most beginner basic books for people who are you know in debt because they have actually i was not in debt but they have really good books for people who are in debt and don't know how to manage their money because like you said not not everyone knows how to do that um how you don't just naturally learn that i guess maybe some people Right. So that's like which credit card to pay off, how to budget, everything like that, all the way up to investing and things of, you know, what to do. In other words, if you have money, <laughs> so it's like now, you know, you're, you're sort of financially screwed. I start there in my list and then I order the books in terms of w- what level they're at. And at the end of the list is, is books to do with when you've got money and what do you do with it, that kind of thing. And, you know, I put that list on my wall. And I just got those books from, you know, Amazon for like 10 pence or something, the second hand. And then I just read them all. And it was an exposure therapy, actually. Uh, of course, there was an educational aspect of it. But the thing that I could really feel tangibly was it was an exposure therapy um, to look in the direction of money and finances and to go through systematically these books. I didn't care if I retained any information. The point was I was getting a comfortability in the space of money to the point where started to see through my emotional associations with the whole thing and start to see a little bit more for what it is. It's just, you know, numbers, like it's a kind of a game. You can see it as kind of a game in a way. Uh, It's not 
it's kind of neutral. It's not, there's no, it's not really an emotional thing. It's, you know, it's all this sort of stuff started to work through, I suppose, whatever I had to do with money. And uh, that helped a lot. That really helped a lot to divorce money from some sort of emotional, I don't know, level of, and, and put it more where it belongs. Do you remember your first uh, transaction of doing something like meaningful like this or the first job that you've encountered? My first, uh, uh, or your first project, I guess, uh, your first project that you've uh, gotten or maybe a workshop that you ran or something that you got, I guess, paid transactionally for doing something like this. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I guess, you know, I, in my teens, I used to, I used to teach guitar to some of the kids at school. <laughs> I mean, that's the first, that, that's really the, it, it, what it was. I was better at guitar than they were. And um, the guy wanted lessons. I said, sure. Charged him small amount. I used to go to his house. This is the very first one. In the lunch break, we could you could go to people's homes at that time, a very small place. And so I'd go to his home and teach him some guitar. And, uh, you know, I remember that, yeah. And it was really interesting. It's like, oh, okay, this is interesting. Do you think that that kind of kept up with you till until now that, you know, to provide something and teach something was looked at normal versus, you know, ah, I'm just going to do it for free. Yeah. I mean, I do things for free um, now, uh, uh, but that's, you know, because I can and because it's nice to do things for free sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but no, I don't think I ever really struggled too much with the idea of charging for delivering, you know, teaching a skill or something like teaching someone guitar or something like that, you know, you charge fairly. And, you know, the, the real metric is, do they stay? Do your clients yeah. or customers in whatever phases stay? And of course, if you overcharge, then uh, people won't pay or they won't stay because it's not, it doesn't provide the right value. If you undercharge, um, you won't be able to grow properly and you'll burn out or you won't, you won't have that, you know, you won't have basically the time to actually really make a good product. If you if you charge appropriately, then you are able to deliver your best to the situation, and the other person is able to afford it, and or rather, the other person is, considers it to be of the right value. The relationship business relationships are most profitable when they're done over time. It's not just a hit and run transaction. That's very expensive because you've got to keep getting new people to ransack. <laughs> so if people are with you for a long period of time, keep coming back, recommending people and so on. Well, then, you, you know, and, and you're feeling good about the whole thing as well. And you've got the right, you know, you're feeling appropriately compensated. Then I think that's the right, that's the right uh, balance, isn't it? In terms of pricing, but yeah, pricing is a big issue. How do you price for, how do you price your business? How do you price your products? It, it is a big issue. Uh, I mean, it is a complicated issue. A lot of people struggle with that. Uh, so I wanted to ask you specifically, um, how did you start this whole thing? Like podcasting, what was the first experience like? Um, who gave you the idea? I guess, were you running workshops beforehand? Or yeah. so you were doing workshops the whole time since you were young, pretty much. And it kind yeah. of developed into something a little bit bigger. Yeah. kindly mentioned at the beginning uh that you'd listen to uh that was uh you know it's just another one of those things like 
how can I do more interesting things? It was like that. So it's great because a podcast, you just get people and they come and talk to you and you interview them. And it's just so interesting and fantastic and people enjoy listening to it. And you also get to do the research. So you're learning things uh, in, in advance. Uh, so I did that just because uh, it seemed like fun, really. And so then I would in- ask people in my, you know, who I thought were interesting. And some of them said yes. <laughs> That's how it goes, you know. Yeah. You're almost at over 100 episodes with podcasts and you had so many fascinating people. Um, obviously, Joe Rogan talks about how he created the podcast for himself to learn. And yeah. it's sort of it's sort of my selfish uh, way as well to have interesting people so I could have a conversation to learn and hopefully I could spread the message to help other people to gain new perspectives. But what has, what like difference has, you know, going through the first hundred episodes made in terms of meeting people, gaining insights that, you know, maybe you could have not found or gaining resources that you could have not found in the books. What is that like? What do you feel like, what do you, if you compare yourself to the Guru Viking episode one to what you're currently at with everything, what, what would you say the major differences were? I mean, not a lot of people could talk about, you know, having Shinzen Yang and your kind of partner with them. And I know you guys are running um, the meditation uh, clubs or retreats online. Uh, I think together you're going to collaborate. You know, for me, that's that's something, you know, really fascinating. Maybe for other people, they if they're not familiar with Shinzen Yang. Uh, but in terms of that, like the opportunities that you got, your mindset changed and, you know, what kind of influences. Maybe there was a, a shift, uh, you know, through the guests that you had on. Hmm. Well, my guests are so fascinating and interesting and many of them really, really smart and really, really learned experts in their fields, right? So they're all smarter than and no more at this subject than I do, obviously. Otherwise, I'd be an expert in their field, you know. And so uh, it's um, you know, just being exposed to, and these sorts of people are very busy as well. So yeah. the opportunity to sit across from someone, even virtually, and have a discussion about their area of interest or their life uh, with, with these really, really, you know, clever people. It, it, it's, you can't help but be enriched by that. You can't help but be enriched by that, you know. And yeah, I've, I've made friendships with some of my guests and also, you know, more, you know, had uh, learned very much from some of my guests, actually. Uh, and that's also very wonderful. Um, but yeah, I just think just being in the company of even virtually, uh, of these sorts of intelligent people is a, a great privilege and, and can only, it can, it can only, I suppose, season my own intelligence or, you know, cult, help. I don't know. It's hard. And there, you know, the other thing that's so interesting about a lot of these guys, is be kind and, and with their time to come on to the podcast and do something like that. That's also very nice. So that, I think that generosity, uh, of time also has an effect. They say in Buddhism that the way you learn generosity is by 
um, experiencing it as a receiver. I think that's true. The way you learn to be generous is that you experience generosity. Um, that's why one of the, you know, the way you learn to be kind is by experiencing kindness. It has such a profound impact when you experience kindness or generosity. It stays with you. It sort of lodges in you. It's like a, like a good virus kind of stays in you think, oh, that's what it's like. And it's, it's really uh, quite impactful. So, uh, yeah, I think these sorts of things, because you're asking me what are the differences in me, right? Of course, uh, from a podcast point of view, uh, you get more listeners, you know, you get uh, access to more guests. This is the natural flow of a podcast, as you know yourself. But uh, as a per person, I think yeah, that sort of stuff is really, really useful. So how did you um, get on this boat? Because uh, I remember when I watched you through Frank Kang, and then I discovered your videos. I was like, is that guy on a boat? Is he yeah. and, I, and I come across it. And I'm like, okay, this is something different. And uh, especially when you do uh, the two hour meditations, the hour meditation, I think you even had a four hour meditation on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, how did you come across this boat? Uh, what was the reason you got it for? And this is like your permanent home right now. You said your bunker almost because of the whole uh, situation that's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. um, what was the first experience like? And why did you get this? Yeah, well, in the UK, we have these canals, which are man-made rivers, uh, man-made rivers, and they were used to transport goods before the days of railways. And so these long, thin, six foot, 10 wide, my boat is, 59 foot long, these long kind of river barges, if you want, would be used to go up this, up and down this arterial system of canals um, to transport goods around the place, right? So that's, that's what it is. And then uh, people would live on those boats and with their families as, as well as doing all this transportation. And now there's very, really very little transportation of goods that happens on the canals because we have stuff like roads and trains and things. So, and uh, so people live in these boats. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's the setup and how I found it. I, you know, I used to, was living in London and I was traveling a lot, wanted a place, uh, wanted a place more in the countryside and, Mm -hmm. So I, I uh, looked into it and turned out. What was that? What's the difference like on lifestyle living on a boat versus, you know, being in a physical grounded home here? Well, it moves a little bit, uh, <laughs> which is really interesting. I really like that. So uh, on land, it's quite, can be quite stiff. Land doesn't really move a lot, right? I mean, a li little bit, but not much. So there's something nice about the movement. Really nice. Uh, people tend to say they sleep very well on boats. It's a steel hull as well. So there's a certain kind of a enclosing quality to it. And of course, you, you notice the seasons more. Boats are living things, they say. Um, in that sense that, not in the sense that they're alive, like a biological organism is alive, but in the sense that they're, they, they're, they move, they, they have certain uh, things that you have to tend to on a regular basis. You know, behind me, you can see I have a stove there. It's winter here. It's December. And so it's cold. And so you have to have that stove on you. You make the fire. Um, there's repairs always needing to be done on a boat. Maintenance work you always need to be done. When you move it, of course, you're moving through nature and so on. So you're in touch more with the seasons, I would say, than you would be in a house. When you go inside of a house, it's really no different any time of the year on the inside. But a boat is quite different during the different seasons. These are, these are some of the things. And you, did you adapt to that pretty quick? What were like some of the differences? Obviously, I know you have to be conservative when it probably comes to water. Is there, or do you have to refill the tanks? Uh, there's, I don't know if you 
since you're using uh, wood or you're probably not using propane and stuff like that or? Yeah, actually uh, there's coal in there um, coal. right mm -hmm. But you use wood to sort of get it going a little bit and then coal because it's more efficient, burns longer, etc. cetera. Uh, yeah, well, it's, they run on diesel. The engines run on diesel. Mm. Um, also, uh, you can have heating that's diesel-based. Uh, of course, you have electric and everything like that. Uh, yeah, you have to conserve water. Right now, I'm in a marina due to the lockdown. Oh, we're not allowed to travel here in the UK unnecessarily. So if I need to refill or do something like that, I can travel to the place to do that. But um, I'm not allowed to navigate the canal system. So I'm in the marina here. And so I can plug into shore power, as they call it, which means like just plugging in as if I'm in a house. So I don't have to think about that. And uh, the tap is just right over there at the end of the pontoon. So I can fill up anytime I like. So actually in a marina, it's really not so different from being in a house, except you've got to you know empty your toilet and you've got to fill up your tank manually and things like that. On the canal, if you're traveling around, which people do, People spend their whole time traveling around the canals. You can stay in any one place for free for two weeks and then you've got to move on. So there's people that do that. They call it continuously cruising. And of course, then you have to plan your where are your water points? Where can you empty your toilet, etc. Where can you refill your diesel? And you have to kind of plan that and conserve water. So you, in, if you're in the shower, you get wet, turn the shower off, then you you know, soap yourself down or whatever it is, you know, like what is it? And they say in American Psycho, the bo uh, body scrubs and all that, you know, yeah, you know that great yeah. scene in American Psycho, Christian oh, Bale. Yeah, yeah, where he goes through the layers of uh, his first face mask and then, uh, yeah, yeah, what I don't even know. I know, I know my girlfriend does all that stuff a lot. Yeah. So if it was Christian Bale on a boat, he'd say, you know, uh, in the morning, you know, I turn on the shower to get away. <laughs> yeah. And then I turn off the shower to conserve water. I then apply my body scrub. I then turn on the shower again and wash off the body scrub. And, you know, that way, of course, you don't, you don't stand in the shower just like this basking in it. <laughs> yeah, you do stuff like that. I mean, it's good fun, though. It's a good laugh. It's a good adventure, you know. How, how long have you been uh, living on a boat? Uh, five or six years now. Holy shit. Okay. Did, do you have a name for it? Everybody does. Yes. Yes, I do. But I don't, I'd rather not mention the name just because then it's a little more easy to find me. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> it's written on the side of the boat, you know. Yeah, people have names. People have great names. Uh, one guy around here, um, oh, I, can't, I probably can't say that. I, no, I won't. I, I, I don't want to list people's boat names, yeah, but there's yeah. some really hilarious boat names due to, you know, connected to things like spending the inheritance and, uh, you know, retiring. And, you know, I think people sometimes name their boats at their point of retirement and they, they have this sort of screw you attitude to life, you know, to their work. And they're like, yeah, I'm retired now. And then they're on the boat 10 years later, they still have this sort of very screw you slogan on the side. And, you know, it's very interesting. <laughs> you got to oh. be careful when you name a boat or indeed a child or a yeah. pet. It's not, especially. You've got to think, well, I'm going to have to call this thing, this, this name for five, 10, who knows how many years. It better be something that's not just, you know, I can live with. Um, before we go, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, your services, what you specifically provide right now, because I saw your, I wanted to talk about, um, I think I saw your do like one-on-one -on -one strategic and you've worked with uh, various famous people, Oscar winners and stuff like that. So I wanted to ask you, I guess, when somebody comes to you, like, and obviously 
in, in a way that doesn't give away your complete like process of business. Like how do you engage uh, with the person for the first time, you know, uh, through the strategic session or whatever it is, if you could give like an overview. Sure. Yeah. In terms of the, those sort of one-on-one client situations, it's word of mouth there. Mm-hmm. So I don't really push that as you, as you probably noticed, um, you know, there's no booking form or something. So it's kind of word of mouth. So usually someone's coming to me already, I suppose, if you want to say in sales pre-qualified yep. um, in the sense that there's not a lot of selling to be done because um, they, you know, they've been recommended. And so it's kind of like already a match, you know, like been match matchmaking in a way. The perfect client. Yeah. Something like that. And then I, I like to work on an issue, uh, kind of short-term issue basis, I guess. So work out what is they want uh, and then see if that's something that I think I uh, I can help with or if I have the time to help with or et cetera. And then if I don't, then I refer them to somebody else who knows more about that. And that's actually really important uh, to do that. Uh, and, and then if we decide to do something together, then we figure it out. I mean, is it going to be like one session or is it going to be a series of sessions? And you figure that out and then you you do it and then you review if it's going well or not and so, some, something like that. It's pretty much exactly what you'd think. What are the uh, some of the problems uh, come, I guess, what are the, some of the challenges people come uh, with to inquire about? Well, it really depends. That really depends. Is it more of like, I guess obviously it's always solving something personal, but um, is it more of learning meditation, getting an introduction into something, or do you see like maybe like a common uh, trend? Yeah. uh, Rarely actually do people come directly to me for meditation instruction uh, like that. That's not so common. Um, Now we're talking about a side of the business, which is really referral based. And so it doesn't have necessarily always an awful lot to do with, things like the podcast they never probably heard of that yeah um they may not really know much about um meditation or my involvement in it i mean maybe a bit but so they're not really coming at it through those angles it's a bit different it depends personal strategy stuff could be mm. depends on what they, they have some issue they need some advice they need um a, you know a good perspective they need uh someone who's who's can be a bit savvy and strategic if they're facing uh, a situation it could be personal it could be professional um could be you know kind of uh, pr related something like that so it depends uh where they uh, if if my kind of way of thinking about things and my experience applies to them uh, then sometimes they i'm you know usually employed just for the way i think to to uh, to think about something it's like people do that you know they they hire somebody to be another brain just get yeah. another brain involved and they've got maybe a few brains that they uh, have on their issues. And then they consult those, they consult those brains. <laughs> that's, that sounds a bit weird. Like I'm imagining a bunch of brains in a jar, but it's uh, it's a little bit like that. Um, pickled brain jars. <laughs> yeah. I'm a pickled brain jars basically. Yeah. That's the best way to think about it. Like uh, Mars attacks, you know? <laughs> um, what is your main job? Like, what do you do? Cause I know you um, for a lot of people that don't know Shinzen Young, uh, that's, can't even imagine working with him uh, doing, uh, I think you're doing the virtual workshops with him right now and, or you're getting ready to do, uh, I briefly saw something on your website, 11 day workshop or something, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, 
Yeah, Shinzen has a year-end. He does retreats throughout the year, of course, and he has a year-end retreat, uh, 11-day retreat, which is usually done in California. And I've been an attendee at that for, of course, many years. And I've, um, you know, uh, done the sound recordings at that and th things like that. Yeah, and this year um, I was invited to co-teach it with him, which is uh, very, you know, I was very delighted to do that. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say it's that, you know, Shinzen and I had some sort of ongoing professional collaboration by any stretch, but he, you know, that I was invited to uh, co-teach at uh, this 11-day retreat. Mm -hmm. uh, can, can you give us a little bit of insight what the teachings are going to be about, like the stages, I guess, the process? Sure. It's 11 days um, and it's his system, of, uh, Unified mindfulness, mindfulness, he calls it. And so there's lots of, lots of sitting and the structure of those retreats, so if I just take myself out of it for a moment, mm -hmm. um, uh, the, you sit from early in the morning, like 5.30 or so, until say 10 at night. Um, in the evening, Shinda, Shinzen does a uh, talk, hour, hour and a quarter, say, a lecture, right? Uh, they call them Dharma talks, like a sermon, really. And then in the morning, there's a two, three hour period, I think it is, I'd have to check the schedule exactly, but where he teaches a kind of, um, it's like guided guided session. So there's a part where he'll teach a technique, guiding you in a technique. And then you, there's an AMA, you can, a Q&A, basically you ask him anything you like. So that's the public format. At the time he's doing his technical guidance in the morning, I, as the co-teacher, will be teaching a parallel class, uh, going, uh, taking people who are unfamiliar with his system beginners basically step by step through the different techniques and concepts and categories in, in that case we'll be learning techniques i'll also be giving them you know some information uh, etc getting them up to speed with how it goes and they'll be able to ask me questions as well so that's kind of my involvement in that in the group teaching and then uh there are large chunks of time where you're scheduled to be sitting together in the in the main room and during that group time of everyone sitting silently there's no guidance there you just follow a schedule of sitting and you're applying the techniques doing your meditations uh shinzen is available for one-on-one -on -one consultations and interviews which is commonly done in meditation retreats so you can talk to shinzen about where you're up to and what, what's going on and you ask him anything you like actually in those sessions and i will also be offering those office hours so we're sort of simultaneously doing offering one-on-one -on -one office hour consultations uh, when we're not doing the group teaching. That's, that's the structure of the way he structures his retreats. Damn. I think, uh, I think uh, that's pretty good for the whole podcast. Uh, Steve, thanks for uh, coming on before we go. Um, maybe words of wisdom or something that you would like to tell the viewers and then uh, where can they find you? Words of wisdom, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Put on the spot. <laughs> I don't know if I have any words of wisdom. You know, really. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I have no words of wisdom. I'm afraid, other than other than uh, the, probably the wisest thing I can do is say nothing. <laughs> Actually, I think I'll make that. I'll make that rather uh, cryptic Zen statement of just saying nothing. nothing. Although I've said I've said an awful lot about saying nothing, haven't I, in the last thirty seconds? <laughs> Where can people find me? Well, for more uh, 
profuse words of wisdom such as I just uttered there. Uh, www.guruviking.com is my website. Guru Viking podcast at all major outlets, including Spotify, iTunes, YouTube. <laughs> so that sort of thing. Instagram, Guru Viking. OnlyFans, Guru Vikings, uh, Guru Vikings, uh, Guru Viking acts. No, I don't have an OnlyFans. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Guru .com is the portal for everything. The hub. Cool. Thanks for coming yeah. on, James. You're welcome. Thank wow. you, Paul.